We'll be in James chapter 1 this morning. Starting in verse 9, this is the passage, the little small section of Scripture we'll be unpacking lots of truth from this morning. I hope you came anticipating to hear the Word and allow to have the Word have a perfect work within you. Starting in verse 9 of James chapter 1, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will a rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot tempt anyone. He cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this passage. Father, I pray that, uh, Lord, as this is preached, or that you would influence my heart, Lord, and my voice, Lord, to, to declare truth, Lord, that it would be made clear so that the ministry of your Holy Spirit can take place in hearts. Lord, we ask that if anyone doesn't know you. Father, this would be the morning that they give their heart to you, their life to you. We love you and we pray for your glory in this service. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. So timely, the book of James. We started this book just last week and already uh, the sovereignty of God is being shown and these trials in our church have really crept up. People are going through trials of sickness, of death. They're going through trials of losing uh, loved ones that way. They're going through the trial of, of uh, situations and the wrath of people in their life. Whatever it may be, there's lots of trials going on. How timely that we would come to James, which gives us wisdom to be able to navigate through these trials. This is a wonderful study to be taking part in. It is by God's design that we go through it at the time we go through it. And I hope that this morning you find that this scripture rings so effective in your own heart and your own life. To give some context to that first verse, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. We're just coming off of, right, uh, five through eight, where James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach that may be given to him. Wisdom. Wisdom. The two things that you need to navigate in a trial are wisdom and power, or wisdom and grace. And these are the two concepts that are really present that kind of bookend what's going to be going on here in this passage. Wisdom and grace. Let's talk about wisdom. 
Where is wisdom found? Job 28, starting in verse 12. It says, Where shall wisdom be found, and where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth, and it is not found in the land of the living. The deep says, It is not with me, and the sea says, It's not from me. It cannot be bought for gold, and silver cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, and the precious onyx or silver, gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral, of crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. From where then does wisdom come, and where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say, we have heard a rumor of it with our ears. God understands the way to it, and he knows its place. Wisdom has such great value. Wisdom is an understanding are the ways that we can navigate and enjoy the riches of this life that we have, which God has given us on this earth. Without wisdom, you can have all the money in the world, but it won't bring you life. Wisdom brings life. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And when you have the fear of the Lord, all you have to do is ask for wisdom. And God gives it. When you have the fear of the Lord, you're not like the type who wavers, who's double-minded. You've got two different motivations. You've got two different reasons you want wisdom. You want wisdom so that you can have relief, right? That's a double-minded person. You're asking double-mindedly you're asking with two motivations instead of asking, Lord, I'm thankful for this trial. I need your wisdom now Lord, so that I can understand how to navigate through it, how I can endure it. That's where wisdom's found, and it's so valuable. And that is why it says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. We are seated with Christ in the heavens. If, if you belong to Jesus Christ because you put faith and the reality that you're a sinner, and if you died apart from knowing Christ, that you'd be hopeless, you'd be lost, you'd lose God forever. And you have chosen to follow Christ, and you've received, you've agreed, yes, Lord, thank you for dying for my sins. And God supernaturally changes you, if that's you, then you've got no reason to boast in your lowliness, to sort of glory in that. I know that sounds strange, but some people do it. They kind of boast in their, their, their lowest state in life. Most of us can't relate to that, actually. Most of us actually relate to the rich. I know you're thinking, I'm not rich. Ah, no, I identify with a lowly person. I'm not a rich person. Yeah, those rich people. Who do they think they are, right? Well, they're riches, basking in going for a swim in all their gold, right? That's what we think when we think of people that are rich. But actually, if you're looking at the subject, the people that he's writing to, if you compare their wealth to our wealth, we're rich. We're the, really the rich ones. We're really the rich ones. We live paycheck to paycheck. They lived day to day, right? They would go and work and they'd get enough money to be able to have food for their family for that day. It wasn't like you had a refrigerator, back then, that you could just throw stuff in. 
right? No, you need fresh stuff all the time. You need to live day to day. So when it comes to wealth and riches, he says the rich, let them glory in their humiliation. Cast off your riches and come to the same pool of refreshment that the poor must come to. And that is the very grace of God. The very grace of God. It says in Psalm 33, 16 through 19, the king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by his great might, it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Psalm 34, 8 says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Whoever fears the Lord does not suffer want. Right? Whoever fears the Lord does not suffer want. It's so easy in our culture that when I'm, when I want to be satisfied, I go to the riches of my wealth. What do rich people do? What, what can rich people do that poor people can't do? Well, if they're feeling low or they're feeling unsatisfied, all they have to do is pull out their money and go and buy some satisfaction, right? Whether it be entertainment, whether it be sin, whether it be alcohol, to sort of numb the pain of whatever is going on, they have the ability to do that. More than that, when somebody asks you, for instance, hey, how are things going with you? How are things going for you? You say, great, things are going great, right? And they say, well, why are they great? If your response is, well, uh, well the kids are healthy. Uh, wife and I are getting along okay. Job's going great. Making plenty of money. So I don't understand what you're really asking. What do you mean? Yeah, things are good. If you immediately think of your finances and your comfort in life when somebody asks you how you're doing, right? That means you're really depending on those things. Don't depend on those things. They go away, and when they go away, because it's a promise, riches take up wings and they fly away like an eagle. One minute they're here, the next day they're gone, right? And then if you've put your trust in that and it goes away and you freak out, that's because that's where you've put your trust. That's where you've put your hope and joy is in your stuff. And we do that, right? As Americans, we got lots of stuff. Having stuff's not wrong. Having money's not wrong. I'm not here to make you feel guilty about having money or having a bank account with money in it. Only that you boast in your humiliation when you have those things. That you glory and the fact that you're, you're just bankrupt without the Lord, you know? When somebody asks how you're doing, I don't care how well you're doing financially or how poorly you're doing financially, you can answer honestly, well, I'm doing really great. I spent some time on the Word this morning and I'm just, I just can't get over how good God's been to me by giving me his grace. Not by blessing me with money and stuff, but God's been so good to me in that you know, sometimes when I feel like I'm at my lowest, the Lord's just there to comfort me and his strength and his nourishment are there. I'm so thankful for his church, the people in the body who bring me nourishment as well. I'm so thankful for the richness I have in Christ. I'm so rich. So that you see, the rich man and the poor man, they're both, 
They're both boasting in the same thing. They're both boasting in all the rich blessings that come from God, not from stuff or the lack of stuff. You're rich. When you have wisdom and grace, you're rich. And then what James does after this is he shifts the focus into, in verse 12, he he gives us a God's eye view of trial. That's what this is in verse 12. And I find this to be extremely beneficial, especially when you're trying to counsel somebody through, you're trying to comfort somebody who's in the middle of a trial. This is a really great one. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. You see, that right there is a, is a perspective change. When we're in a trial, and we're sort of getting bombarded by this trial, sometimes we forget in that moment what this is really about, what this trial is really, really for, Right? We kind of get this idea that God's up in heaven and we're just trying to avoid the little pinprick, you know, that he has up on our little voodoo doll up there. And we're like, oh, I hope God doesn't give me another trial. I'm really enjoying life right now, right? And God just sort of grabs a hold of you. He's just cruel to me, squeeze you. You go, oh, I love you anyway. He's like, good, thought so, right? That's how we look at trials sometimes, but that's not the case. He gives us this picture of, of God sort of like a waiting to reward you with a crown of life. He's given you everything necessary in that arena of of trial that he's set you in to win, you see, to be victorious. You're not a victim when you're in a trial. Quit squirming around like you're a victim. You're not a victim. God's not intending you to just sort of endure his wrath to get through it. This is an opportunity for us as believers, get this, to display valor. To display valor. That trial that you're in, that's intended for you to display valor from strength and wisdom that comes from God. He's given you the weapons to be able to face that trial head on. So neat how when you're preparing to preach, how God just kind of sets these people in front of you and scenarios in front of you all week long. And on Tuesday, I was meeting with with a group of guys that I meet with. And we have a friend who goes to that group, in our small group, and, and he just got news that day that his, his cancer was spreading and that they were gonna need to do uh, chemotherapy. He's already endured some of the treatment for his cancer already. And that left him very tired, very weak, very discouraged. And so as he's describing this to us, you know, everybody in the group, you could just feel everybody's kind of, Ah, you know, there's sort of this weight of sorrow. Oh, man, that stinks. Man, that's too bad. But then he just keeps talking. He says, you know what's really amazing is that it's like the trial that I had in the treatment before has given me the strength to go through this one where I'm actually less afraid of this trial than I was from the other one. I thought, wow, what a perspective. What a perspective. That's a spiritual perspective, by the way. That's what that is. When someone's walking in the spirit and a trial starts to mount up, they don't go, oh no, woe is me. I'm a victim. They pull out their sword of truth and they say, bring it on. Right? Bring it on. God has intended this trial in my life to show valor, 
to utilize the power and wisdom that he gives me, and he's waiting for me to complete this trial, to endure this trial, so that he can give me a crown of life at the end of it. What a promise. It's a completely different perspective. It's not a woe is me perspective. It's not a, oh, God must be punishing me. Maybe he's trying to make me learn something, and when I learn it, then he'll relent. And I'll continue on, hopefully not doing anything bad from that point on. That is totally ridiculous. That's not what trials are for. That's not what trials are for. Trials are for the glory of God. Trials bring reward. Trials are what we do. What does Wallace say? Wallace always says, you're either in your three places as a Christian. You're either just coming out of a trial you're just going into a trial or you're in a trial. It's one of those three things. Very rarely are we not in the midst of a various trial. What did Jesus say? He's like, hey, don't be deceived. If they hated me, they're going to hate you, right? This is the way this works. But it doesn't mean that we walk in a spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of a sound mind. We can do that, but we have to have that God view perspective. That's why James gives us that. So that we have the heart of a warrior when it comes to a trial, not the heart of a whimperer. See? After he gives this great perspective, in verse 13, James shifts it. He says, let no one say, when he is tempted, by the way, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. He himself tempts no one. James is going to go on to sort of describe temptation, talk about where it comes from. We're going to talk about that too. But before he even gets there, he identifies a tendency in our flesh that is to sort of put the blame on God for my temptation, for the desires that I feel towards sin. We call temptations that. Desires that I feel to sin. Why did God make me like that? God, why you... Ah, right? Put the blame on God. We get it from our daddy, Adam, by the way. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 9 through 13, it says, But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, but I was afraid because I was naked. And I hid myself. And God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, Yes. No, he didn't say that. He said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the tree, the fruit of the tree, and then I ate. It wasn't me. It was the woman. See? And then the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, oh, yeah, I gave him that. No, she said, the serpent. It was a serpent. I mean, what's the serpent doing here, God? You know, isn't this your creation? This is your garden. You created all the animals here. Right? I didn't ask to talk to a serpent. The serpent just comes slithering up. It's your creation. I don't know. It wasn't me. That's the reaction. It wasn't me. Our kids do the same thing. Why'd you hit your brother? He was bugging me. I had to. It's the only thing I could do. Obviously, you see my pain. A guy can only take so much. I had to wallop him. You understand. You can get after him now. I mean, I hit him, but you could probably hit him a little harder. Right? It wasn't my fault. And sadly, we do the same thing. We do the exact same thing, right? We want to blame God for when we blow it. 
Or when you're, when you're in an argument with your spouse or you're in an argument with another believer or whatever, or a sibling, and you justify that, right? Well, I wouldn't have had to say that if they hadn't done that. I mean, they pushed me. They pushed me, you know. It wasn't my fault. I'm just as God made me, right? I've only got so much here. First thing James does is say, no, no, no. We're cutting that out. You need to know something about God. God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. There's nothing in God that wants sin. He doesn't want it. There's nothing in him that desires sin. He's holy. He's got a completely different nature than we do. Because he has a completely different nature, he's not drawn to sin, there's no, there's no attraction there, then it makes no sense that he would ever give any of that. It couldn't come from him, right? Couldn't come from him. God doesn't hold the smoking gun when it comes to your temptation. Who does? <laughs> Glad you asked. Let's find out. So it says, but each person, verse 14, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Interestingly, James uses some hunting and fishing terminology here. We're Wyoming folk. We can relate with that, right? He says, lured, right? Each person is tempted when he is lured, meaning this is a hunting term. This is like a, like a cow call when you're elk hunting. This is a lure, lured and enticed. That's like a baited hook, enticed, a baited hook by his own desire. What does that mean? Well, here's a great example. He uses these terms for a reason, so we're going to use the same thing. When um, I was year before last, I think, uh, I decided to go hunting with, with Sean. Sean Ennis and I usually go hunting together. And we went with Jason this one time. And Jason has this amazing elaborate vest. And in this vest, he has all manner of hunting lurage, right? He's got a cow call. He's got the bull call, right? He's got all this stuff. He's got the scents, I think, the sprays, right, to make yourself smell like some, like, like an elk, I guess. Anyway, so... He's pulling this thing out, and unfortunately, we were hunting, you know, kind of like looking like Elmer Fudd out there, but we're kind of hunting around, we're looking, you know, and it's too late in the season for this lure, unfortunately. So he's doing the cow call, but nothing's happening, right? It's just a little bit too late. Now, if you go earlier in the season, very beginning of rifle season, or you go into bow hunting season, you can use these calls, man. It just drives the elk crazy, right? I mean, you'd, you could do the bull call, and it's like, who's that? Who's that? These are my cows, right? And it just comes racing out there. It can't resist the sound. It can't resist it, right? So if the desire is in the animal, the lure will do its job. But if the desire is not in the animal, they're not in the rut, it's just like another noise. They don't care. They're like, was that a cow? <laughs> what do I care? I have all this grass and this wonderful stream. Ah, I think I'll take a nap. There's so much here for me to enjoy. I don't care about the lure of the cow. The trick with fishermen is to find the bait that really works, right? So you got this, these fishermen are really into it. I'm not really as much into fishing, personally. 
They're not very big, and they're a lot of work. But that's just me. A lot of guys love fishing. And the, you know, the trick of it is to know, especially fly fishermen, they're really jealous about their flies, right? This one's irresistible. And they give them names. They give each fly a name. You ever seen that? I call this one can't resist, or I call this one plump and juicy because there's no way, there's no way they're resisting this fly. This fly's, right? And the idea is to, to offer up a fly or some bait that, that just looks great to that fish. Unfortunately, though, if that fish has had a lot of flies to eat that day, he just wants to sleep. Have you ever been there? This is why I don't like fishing. I go to Lake Marie, I throw my bait in, I'm like doing this, and I, I see a giant rainbow trout, and I'm like bumping into it with my bait, and it's just like, it doesn't do anything. Why? Because that fish apparently is already satisfied, and it, I don't have anything on the hook that it wants. So when it comes to temptation, get this. We don't bait the hook. I, I really believe that, you know, this world order, Satan or whatever, they have, he has got lots of baited hooks, and he's got lots of lures to lure us in. And if you're walking in the flesh, guess what? That's, that's all you can hear. You're like that elk in the rut, man. That's all you can hear. You can't resist it. It's one thing that a fisherman and a hunterman, a hunterman, a hunter, are really after, and that's to kill the animal that they bring in. That's the intent of the lure and of the baited hook, to kill, to kill. But that's not the thing that kills us. Like that cow call is not killing anything, right? It's sin that kills. That bait on a hook can't kill anything. It'll snag you, but it's not going to kill the fish. It's not intended to do that. It's intended to catch the fish, right? In the same way, there may be temptations in this world. We don't blame the temptation, right? You got a problem with money? You got a problem with alcohol? You got a problem with women? You don't blame that lure or that that bait, you don't blame that. Where does the blame go? This strong desire within you. He moves on to the childbirth terminology when he says, then desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin, and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. Desire when it is conceived. That is a turning of the will. You have this desire but when the desire is conceived, that's a way of saying that I've now gone from desire to decision. I have decided on my will to do it. And decision leads to disobedience every time. Your door of escape exists between desire and decision. That's where it exists. Once you've decided in your will that you're going to sin, and we all know what that feels like, Anybody who's walked with the Lord for any amount of time, you know what it feels like to, to succumb to that in your will before you even commit the act, right? You're like that dumb animal just going 90 miles an hour toward that lure. It can't resist. You're going there, right? The question is, when I do sense a desire, how can I be sure to not indulge in that desire? Isn't that what we all, really all want to know? Because we're all guilty, aren't we? Of being tempted and then succumbing. How do we resist? Glad you asked. It's in Galatians chapter 5. 
Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 16. This is a great passage. I tell you, if you've not underlined this, this gives great insight. Galatians 5, starting just 16 and 17. Paul says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That's a great promise, isn't it? Walk by the Spirit, and you will not, will not. You want to know how not to gratify the desires of the flesh? Will not. Walk by the Spirit. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. In other words, when you walk by the Spirit, you are repulsed by the temptation of the flesh. Repulsed by it, you don't have an appetite for it. You're like that elk who's eating the grass. He's like, I wish that cow would just shut up. I'm trying to enjoy my meal. See? I'm trying to enjoy my meal. When you walk by the Spirit, Sam Martin's definition of walking by the Spirit, or to maybe clarification, maybe not definition. Don't go with Sam's definition on stuff. Is living your life with complete satisfaction from what comes from the hand of God. Living your life in complete satisfaction from what comes from the hand of God. He is so satisfying. So satisfying. You'll be like a big fat fish swimming around the pond and nothing tempts you because you're just so satisfied with what the Lord has. What he has to offer you. He says in verse 16, Do not be deceived, my brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. What does God have to offer you other than amazing wisdom, which is to be treasured more than anything is wisdom, but also every good and perfect gift, every good gift and every perfect gift God has for you. You don't need to be satisfied by winning that argument, right? You don't need to be satisfied by watching that movie. You don't need to be satisfied by getting that other person to like you. You don't need to be satisfied by changing your situation in life. None of those things matter. What really matters is this morning I get to eat from the table of God. And he has so many great things for me to consume. So much that I'm so satisfied. I don't have a want for anything else. Are you hearing me? Let me ask you this. Because I'm saying this because so many of us, if you've not been here and you, you don't think that working really hard on, your, on fighting against sin and your flesh... If you think that's going to work, right, then you've not been where I've been and where a lot of us have been. How many of us have strove so hard to resist the flesh? I mean, you have tried everything. You've read your Bible for a solid hour or so. You've tried to listen to Christian music all day long. And yet, you still sin, right? You've been there? You worked really hard, really, really, really hard, and you still sin anyway? Here's your good news. Here's your good news. 
Stop trying to solve it by trying harder with the same flesh that wants to sin in the first place, right? When that sin temptation comes, when that desire comes, instead of saying, oh, I gotta, oh, I gotta go for a drive, or I gotta, oh, I gotta go, right, do something. Instead of doing that, give up. What do you mean? I didn't say give in. Give up. Give up. Say, Lord, look at me. Look at me, look what I'm doing. Look where my desire is. Obviously, Lord, I'm not satisfied in you. Because if I was satisfied in you, I wouldn't even have this appetite for this. Lord, I want to I wanna fellowship with you. You know what it says in James? Draw near the Lord, and what? He'll draw near to you. And where God is, sin is not. Sin is not. You need the presence of the Lord. You don't need behavior modification. You need a new appetite. You need a new appetite. And God gives so much, so much, so much that you can have confidence and joy when it comes to temptation. You can say, you know what? I've never, I've never, I've never seen a way out of temptation. It seems like if given the right scenario, I'll always fall every single time. So we look at the purpose, what the purpose of all this stuff is, right? And we see that. We see the purpose of, ah, man, why does God allow trial? Why does he allow temptation? Now, God, again, doesn't send temptation, but he does allow Satan and darkness to be able to spread these hooks and lures all over the place, right? So that we find strength in grace, not in striving harder. So here's a good question. Why do you want to stop sinning? Now, seriously, ask yourself that. Maybe a Sunday school answer is popping in your head already. Why do you want to stop sinning? Maybe you want to be a better person. Maybe being a better person makes you feel better about yourself. Is that what this is about? Is that why we're here? Is this a self-help group where we come and feel better about ourselves? Maybe being sinless is your key to self-righteousness. And if you could just be self-righteous, then you could have some respect for yourself, right? God will not bless that with his grace. He won't. He won't compete. Because what that is, is that's a call for autonomy from God. That's a call for you to not need the Lord. What God has for you, which is so much better, is that you be satisfied in him. Really satisfied. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. You see, all these trials, all these temptations, reading this last verse in verse 18, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. These different people, these, these people that, that go amongst the world and the world is dark and the world follows its own desire, but you have these beacons of light. Ephesians 2.10 we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he has prepared beforehand, right? That we should walk in them. That we should walk in them. God intends for us to be strengthened, to be given wisdom, so that we can walk through this life as he walked, right? Anyone who says he's in Christ Jesus, 1 John 2, 6, ought to walk as he walked, right? 
so that you're actually like Christ. You see that? And you endure a trial, and you're like, bring it on, bring on the trial. Watch, watch this. Everybody, watch this. This is going to be amazing. I'm going to fly, right? It's like, it's like you're able to harness the greatest possible power and wisdom that you could harness so that you could display the glory of God, endure the pain, and come out the other side and get a crown of life for it. And God enjoys that. When you're tempted, when everybody else is tempted by this thing going on, and you just seem to be rising above it, like, man, you must really be wise. There must be something about you that God has somehow fashioned you and made you more pure, right? And you're like, no, man. I just admit that I'm a dirty, nasty person who would do that any given day. And I ask for the Lord to satisfy me with his presence. Give me strength so I can just enjoy him. And God does. And I don't have an appetite for it anymore. Daily, I do that. That brings him glory. Isn't that what we really want? I hope you didn't become a Christian so that you didn't go to hell. I hope you didn't become a Christian. I say that in this, because you may not be. So that you could go to heaven. I hope you didn't become a Christian so you wouldn't have any more problems. Yikes. Problems are what we do, right? That's the road we are on. It is a straight and hard road, the Christian life. The motivation for someone who loves Jesus, who follows Jesus, who wants to be Christian, is quite simply to make great our great God, to make him great and big in my life, to overcome my heart, to change me, to be more like him, because it's really all about him. Really all streams back to God, doesn't it? If that's not your heart, but you can see, wow, I really need to worship that God. That's God drawing you. You can give your life to him. You can give your heart to him. He'll forgive you of your sins. He died on the cross for your sins. He did that because he loved you. You can bring glory to his name with your life. I hope you don't compare yourself to each other here. I hope you don't compare yourself to me. Don't think that we come up and preach ourselves when we come up here to preach. You think, well, I'm not like him, but he's the pastor, so he's got it be like that. No, we're not the standard. Nobody in here is the standard. Jesus is the standard. Don't worry about looking righteous. Don't worry about being perfect. You just go enjoy God and you'll look behind you and say, whoa, I just realized I look back and I haven't struggled with that sin for like months. Right? But don't get prideful. <laughs> Trip, right? You keep your eyes on the Lord. That's where victory is. We're not victims in trial. We're victors. We're winners. We carry about the glory of God in his conquering. And one day Jesus is going to come back, amen. And when he comes back, he's going to reign. And we're going to be with him. We want to be faithful here. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this morning. I, I pray that, uh, that you're honored with our life. Lord, we feel unworthy 
so many times, Father, because we fail and we, uh, we just can't seem to muster up the strength. But Lord, now we know by the preaching of your word that it's not about our strength. It's not about our performance. You've done everything necessary to bring us directly to God. We want to enjoy you, Father. We want to spend time in your presence. Lord, when trial comes, we want to be able to look up, draw the sword of truth, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, feet that are bound for the gospel, and say, bring it on. That's what we want. That's what we want. It's a great idea, Lord, but I pray that your word would have its effect, your spirit would have its sanctification, and that we would grow in wisdom in these ways, and we wouldn't forget when we walk out the door and Monday comes, and here come the trials. Here come the temptations. Lord, we want to grasp these handles of truth because we want to bring you glory. I pray that you're glorified in this church by your ministry, by your spirit, by your power. In Jesus' name.